Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 31st, 2022, and this is show number 899. Well, Steve and I had a fabulous time circumnavigating Iceland, and it was made possible by Alistair and Bart and the contributors to the shows while we were gone. I don't for a minute take for granted the work on everyone's part that allowed me to completely relax while we were away. You know, in uh, Alistair's No Silicast episode, I really enjoyed Jill from the Northwoods' explanation of how Streaks gets her to follow up with the things she intends to do. Sounds like a terrific app, and I think I need to go check that out because there's a few things I don't quite stick to. Now, I was really sad to hear about Alistair's back problems, but I was intrigued with how he solved them with the Time Out app. I truly need that app because I forget to stand up for hours and hours at a time. I do tons of exercise in the morning and then I do exercise in the afternoon, but in between I just sit at my computer and play and I forget to stand up. Now the Apple Watch is supposed to remind me, but it never does until it's like 10 at night and it goes, you have to stay up till midnight to get credit for 10 stands. You know, I'm so happy that Stephen Getz finally did his Sony headphones review. He did such a great job that I bet I'll never talk him into doing another one again. I had no idea there was a measure called heart rate variability, but Alistair's explanation of how some days when you really just don't feel like working out, it might not be you just being lazy. That was fascinating. Did you guys know that? Am I the only one who didn't know about that? Anyway, with Ed Tobias's tiny tips for the finder, I'm kind of afraid he's going to run me out of a job with my tiny Mac tips. All around, Alistair's show was just fantastic. Now, there was one thing Alistair forgot to do. He didn't tell you to follow him on Twitter at ZKARJ, or as he would say, at ZKARJ, and go to his website, zkarj.me. That's zkarj.me. Anyway, that's where you should go to follow him. He said to follow me, but he never told you where to follow him. Now, Alistair was a beast doing recordings for the No Silicast. It was really fun to hear him uh, as first up on Bart's version of the No Silicast when he told us how he fell in love with photography. And what a great story that was. Now, well, you always should listen to the No Silicast first. It was cool to hear about all of the varied podcasts Bart recommended. I think that's one of the things that make Bart makes Bart so interesting is that he enjoys such a broad set of topics. Alistair helped out even more with his deep dive into Control Center. You know, there's so many hidden gems in that one set of tools that it was great to have them explained one by one. Now, Bart says he really dislikes doing security bits without me, but of course he did a bang-up job of it without my help. For a future show, we have a surprise guest who has volunteered to play the foil to Bart in my place on a security bit segment. You are going to love it. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Alistair and Bart and all of the other contributors for helping make those shows happen. The next few weeks of shows are going to be challenging to say the least. Believe it or not, we have another vacation coming up. We're going to Hawaii with our kids and grandkids for a week. After putting Alistair and Bart through so much work while we were in Iceland, I didn't have the heart to ask them to do it again. The good news is I've got commitments from a bunch of NoSilla castaways for content, so we will not miss a show. One of those people is actually Steve. Anyway, the schedule is going to be wonky, though, and that will impact the live show. So everybody in the live show right now, listen up. I'm going to be publishing next week's show early, probably on Thursday, August 4th. So if you see a show come out on August 4th, you know there's not going to be a live show on August 7th because we won't be home and you already got the show. So a lot of times I have people saying, hey, when's the live show? Where is everybody? It's like, you already got a show early. So that's why you know there's no live show coming. 
The following week, uh, the show will be one day late because we don't come home until Sunday. So it's going to come out on Monday, August 15th. Now, I don't want you guys to panic if you don't see a show on the 14th. Don't think I I've expired in some way. We will do the show on Monday, August 15th. Now, I'll probably talk to the live audience about this, whether or not to do a live show on Monday, because a lot of times people say, yeah, yeah, do it. But then hardly anybody comes and it's a different day, a different time, and it gets really uh, uh, annoying to, I don't know, I just, I get sad because there's not a lot of people there. So anyway, um, probably won't do a live show on the fort- on the 15th either. But after that, we should get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Now, with our travel schedule, it's been quite the challenge to get out the nosilicast, like I said, so chit-chat across the pond is going to still be a little bit uneven. However, next week, Bart and I are going to record a programming by stealth, and uh, so you will get that early uh, in the week before we leave for Hawaii. And then sometime in the future, I have a commitment for an interview that if I pull this off, it's going to blow your socks off. This person has said yes, uh, but I've got to get my nerve up to ask them actually, like, let's pick a time and get it done. If it works, it's going to blow you away. It might be one of the coolest interviews ever. So now after I've built it all up, I think I really have to do it. Before we leave on vacation, we pack way more tech than normal people, but probably, I think probably about average for a Nozilla Castaway. Of course, we both brought our iPhones and I brought my iPad Pro, but we both need laptops on our vacation. And I mean, yet, I mean, need, not want. Steve and I both bought M1 14-inch MacBook Pros recently, but it's really not a good idea to travel with a brand new laptop. Remember when we went to Peru and someone swiped Steve's backpack with his laptop in it? We were both really happy that we had decided on that trip to bring our spare older laptops on that trip. So Steve's previous laptop is a 2016 13-inch MacBook Pro, so he loaded it up with all of his recent software for the trip. My 2016 MacBook, uh, 2016 MacBook Pro, though, is a 15-inch, and the reason I moved down to the 14-inch is because the 15-inch was too heavy to carry. Too heavy to carry on trips especially. The 15-inch is 15% heavier, and every single ounce matters to me. As much as I was worried about losing my new laptop, I just couldn't bring myself to carry that monster, so I took the risk and bought, brought my new Precious. I am happy to say that it came through just fine. Now, you might be asking why we need laptops on the trip. I decided to bring my big girl camera on this trip, which meant I needed an SD card slot on a real computer, not an iPad. Now, I could just hear everyone like Jill and Steven hollering at the devices saying, see, you need that SD card slot that you complain so much about. Well, I would have been happy. I would have been just fine with my adapter, which I brought with me anyway, but I figured I might as well use the built-in slot. But again, using an iPad would have been, I think you can do it, but that would have been hard. Now, Steve brought his big boy camcorder on the trip, mostly because it has a huge zoom on it. So he needed his SD card slot too. Having a big zoom is why I brought my big girl camera as well, and we were both really happy we brought them. On the trip, we were on the edge of a cliff with puffins, and we were able to get some amazing photos and videos of them. They, they look like cartoon birds. They're so cute. Well, even if I didn't use my big girl camera, I need my laptop for something else. On every one of our major vacations, I write a travelogue email about our adventures. Every day, there's a new episode. Now, believe it or not, over 100 people voluntarily have asked to be on the recipient list. They seem to like my silly banter and near total lack of facts in my descriptions. 
I tried once to write the letter completely on my iPad, but embedding images was way harder, and it was just swimming upstream to not use the proper tool for the job. Now, on long flights, Steve and I like to watch the same movie at the same time. He uses his laptop, and I use my 12.9-inch iPad Pro, and we click the play button at the same time. I know, we're so adorable, you can hardly stand it, right? Before we leave, we download movies Steve has ripped to our Plex servers, so we have a good catalog of choices. We did that before leaving on our trip, but we ended up watching one of the provided in-flight movies, so I didn't end up using my iPad at all on that. On the trip, we had hardly a moment of downtime, and the only time we did have was filled with writing my travelogue. We didn't end up watching any video podcasts or streaming TV, and on the ship, we certainly didn't have the bandwidth to do it either. On this vacation, I don't think I used my iPad until our plane flight home when I started writing this very article in Ulysses. There was another reason, a big reason, the iPad didn't get to play on this trip. Our trip was a circumnavigation of Iceland, as I said earlier, on a small cruise ship called Le Below. I said that wrong. Le Below. I think its max capacity is around 200 people, but we only had about 100 on the trip. They had free Wi-Fi, and considering we were in the North Atlantic up into the Arctic Ocean at one point, the service wasn't that bad. It wasn't great, but you could send texts, and I could even send my 2-megabyte travelogue email if I had about 10 minutes to wait for it to upload. But there was one really annoying part about the way the, the Wi-Fi worked. The first time you signed in on a device, you selected Le Below as the SSID, but then you had to open a web page to wifi.ponent.com, Ponent is the cruise company, and then you had to enter your room number and a password. So that's just the first time. Now, they tried to give us just one login per person, but I made them give us each two logins. My phone and my laptop took priority, so the iPad didn't make the cut. I could have logged out of a device and in with the iPad, but that was too much work. I would have been logging in and out. Now, the bigger problem was trying to use a VPN with the ship's internet. You see, each time we woke up a device, we had to reconnect to the Wi-Fi, selecting, selecting the SSID, and we had to go to wifi.ponent.com to reconnect there as well. With our PIA VPN, as soon as we connected to the Wi-Fi, PIA would engage, but we weren't really connected yet, so we couldn't get to the verification webpage. That meant we had to open up PIA, tell it to stop trying to connect, go to the webpage, wait for it to acknowledge us, and then back into PIA. Now, this was nothing wrong with PIA. It was doing its job perfectly, but it was a big mess. We were constantly dancing back and forth to get it to work. Now, another minor problem was created by this weird Wi-Fi network setup. I read books on my Kindle, and when I see words I don't know, I tap and hold on the word to get a definition. Unfortunately, the dictionary is a web service. There's no way I could have navigated the interstitial webpage to verify the login to the Wi-Fi to get a word definition, so I have just made up my own definitions for those words I read while I was on vacation. I'm sure nothing will go wrong with that later. Now, as you can imagine, I took hundreds of photos per day with my iPhone along with a few short videos, and I had to wait for all of those photos to go up to iCloud and back down into my Mac. Now, that might have worked on this very limited Wi-Fi, but I was also putting RAW plus JPEG images from my big girl camera onto my Mac and into photos, and those images had to go up to iCloud and back into my phone. As you can imagine, this basically created a traffic jam of epic proportions with such slow internet. My photos from my phone simply never made it to my Mac for the entire 11 days, nor did the photos from my Mac make it back to my iPhone until I arrived home where I have broadband access. In order to write my travelogue then, I needed to get my photos from my phone over to my Mac. The only way I could do this in any reasonable amount of time was to use AirDrop. 
but you can't airdrop if you're on a VPN because you're on different networks. Oddly, you can airdrop if you're not on any Wi-Fi network at all, but you do have to have Wi-Fi enabled. So I would have had to have have forgotten the ship Wi-Fi on both devices, done the airdropping, and then reconnected and go back through the wifi.ponent.com nonsense, but that was too much work. In the end, we told PIA to just trust the ship's Wi-Fi and we hoped for the best. I'm sure part is rolling over and (laughs) going crazy to hear that, but it was too hard. We just couldn't get it done. Now, we did a three-day pre-tour of the main city of Reykjavik, and we stayed at the Hotel Borg. Yes, we made all the jokes. While staying at the hotel, PIA worked without any issues because there we had normal Wi-Fi. I did notice that it chose some city in the United States for the server location based on latency, but I changed it to Iceland instead. I didn't do any elaborate timing tests, but it seemed like a logical move at the time. I was able to use uh, PIA, pause it when I needed to, do the airdrop dance, and reconnect to PIA while I was at the hotel. Let's talk about backups. When we travel, we carry each other's backup drives in our backpacks. That strategy saved the day in Peru when Steve's backpack got swiped and his camcorder, GoPro, and laptop were inside. Had I not been carrying his backup drive, he would have lost every single photo and video he took on the trip. While in Iceland, I ran my backups of my Mac and I put my drive in Steve's backpack, but I realized that none of the photos I was taking on my phone were backed up since they never came down to my Mac. I've been looking for a reason to buy iMazing for the Mac because it's such a well-loved app, but I never had a problem to solve with it, so I never bought it. I remembered while I was on the ship that one of the things it could do was back up photos from your phone, so I tried to download iMazing on the ship. Sadly, it was 200 megabytes, and after 40 minutes, I was only halfway done downloading and I ran out of time. While the photos from my phone hadn't gotten to my Mac because my Mac was trying to upload these raw photos and the photos on my Mac hadn't gotten to my iPhone, I wondered whether at least the photos would be on iCloud.com from my phone. I never figured out why, but iCloud.com would not let me log in on my Mac. It kept saying my password was wrong, but I was copying it directly from 1Password, so we know that's not the problem. Finally, it occurred to me to try to log into iCloud.com using my phone, and there I was able to authenticate with Face ID. The good news was that with the exception of the last 20 or so photos at the time, all of the rest had safely backed up to iCloud so I could finally relax. Well, Iceland has really good cellular service, like really good. And uh, they've actually put in fiber internet to the uh, uh, all of the farms on uh, almost all of the farms in Iceland, which are super far apart. So that's pretty cool. But again, they had really good cellular service and we were able to take advantage of it when we were out and about in these little fishing villages that we went to. Now, I've talked about it several times before, but we use a service called Google Fi for our international travel needs. I think there are a lot of options available now that might be cheaper for your needs, but I really like the the way that Google Fi works. I pay for one voice and data SIM card, and they gave me four extra data-only cards. They may only give you three now, I forget. But anyway, I I have five, which is way too many. I don't need that many. The cost is $20 per month plus $10 per gigabyte. That's $20 total for all five cards, and $10 per gigabyte is shared between all the the, uh, SIM cards. And the $10 per gigabyte is linear. So if you only use 500 megabytes, that would be $5 plus the $20 for the month. If you consume a lot of data, they stop charging you after six gigabytes. So the most we could possibly pay is $60 for the data plus $20 monthly fee for a total of $80. 
Now, that sounds like a lot, but remember, this is shared amongst all of the users. So Steve had one in his iPhone, I had one in my iPhone, and I had one in my iPad. Steve and I played with reckless abandon on our Macs tethered to the voice and data card whenever we were near, near shore, and we used our phones with their data cards like crazy, we did maps, did all of the fun internet goodies. We used up 10.57 gigabytes on the trip, and again, the total cost for both of us was $80. For data hogs like us, it's great to know that you can play as much as you want and not worry about the bill. That last bit uh, that makes Google Fi work for us is that when you're done with travel, you can simply pause the service. After three months, they automatically toggle it back on, but you get a notification and you can simply pause it again and not be charged until you actually start using it. I've had Google Fi for probably five or six years now, and it's worked in every country where I've tried it. Now, we had another random issue here. Our housekeeper cleaned for us while we were gone, and I normally pay her via Zelle through my bank's uh, login on my phone. But my bank's app detected our, our odd location and insisted, I'm going to send you a text message to verify it's really you. Well, I had my international Google Fi card in, not my real phone number, so I couldn't receive the text, which meant she had to wait to get paid when I got back. Now, I suppose I could have put my regular SIM card back in and paid like $28 to make one text message, uh, just or one uh, message to, uh, to pay her, I guess, but I, I didn't end up doing that. So I texted my housekeeper on her Android phone to tell her there would be a delay in payment, and I noticed something interesting. When she replied to me, there was an odd bit of text glop after her response. So she wrote, sure, no problem with a little smiley emoji, but after that it said, Tilta, T-J-H-U-S-Q-A-V-Y, just a big glop of text. I thought that was kind of strange. So I thought maybe it was the system was just barfing somewhere. But later, when I texted our, text our driver to tell him we'd made our connecting flight when we were in, in uh, Iceland, or no, I think we were actually in Seattle by that time, but I still had that SIM card in there. His Android device also had that same kind of glop at the end. So I don't know why, because none of my text messages to iPhones had this glop. After I switched back to my AT&T SIM and texted him again, there was no glop. No clue what it was, but I thought it was interesting. Actually, now that I think about it, we had to have been still been in Iceland. Yeah, we had to still, I don't know. Anyway, there was glop on Android phones that wasn't on, on, uh, eight, on uh, iPhones, and it was only with Google Fi. We hang out, hung out with a woman named Linda for a lot of the trip who figured out I like to talk tech became a standing joke that she only got one tech question per day, but she could earn extra questions if she behaved herself. Early in the trip, she showed me that she was getting an error on her iPhone when she tried to send images to a group text that included a green bubble person. I checked to make sure that failover to MMS was enabled in settings. That's multimedia messaging. No, what does the S stand for? Shouldn't have tried to say it if I didn't know what it was. Anyway, we made sure MMS was enabled in settings, but it still wasn't working. The next day, I tried to send an image to a green bubble person, and I got the same error. I went searching for how to fix it with Google Fi in the search criteria, because obviously it works on my AT&T SIM, and I found a full setup guide with an amazing amount of glop that you have to add under cellular data network in settings slash cellular. All of these odd changes you have to make are in sections entitled APN. Now, APN stands for Access Point Name, and it's a gateway between GSM, GPRS, 3G, or 4G mobile networks and another computer network, frequently the public internet. That is a quote from a website. It all, oh, they went on to say, a mobile device making a data connection must be configured with an APN to present to the carrier. Okay, whatever. Anyway, after putting all those cryptic things in, like H2G2-T, 
And at one point, one of the APNs had to say HTTP colon slash that's not HTTPS. It's HTTP and then m.fi.goog slash MMS slash W-A-P-E-N-C. And that went in the MMSC field. Don't know what that is. And then I had to set the MMS max message size field to the highly suspicious value of 23456789. When I did all of that, I could send MMS messages to my green bubble friends. It felt like a magic incantation, but it worked. Now it was time to figure it out for Linda, who was using T-Mobile. This is where it got even weirder. The instructions I found are step-by-step, and I think they probably would have worked, but T-Mobile had an animation to go with the instructions that used a flip phone. Now, maybe that's not the latest ones, but I was dying to try it, so I sent it to Linda, and I offered to sit with her and translate the instructions to work on her modern phone, and I loved her response. She wrote, or she said back to me, yesterday, I sent to my blue bubble son, and I asked him to forward it. I think that'll work good enough for now. It's not worth using up the rest of my questions on this one thing. Linda's awesome. Well, before we left, I made sure that both of our checked bags, both of our backpacks, and our carry-on luggage all had air tags in them. When we left the hotel or the ship, we appreciated the notifications that our bags had been left behind, along with our laptops and my iPad. But more importantly, it was highly useful to be able to track our luggage at the various airports. Now, the main value was to know for certain, upon arrival in a new city, that our luggage had made the flight. A few times, my luggage showed as still being on the runway when it was already coming down the conveyor belt, so minute-by-minute updates didn't really happen all the time. But again, the real value was knowing that it was nearby. I would be very hesitant from now on to travel without AirTags in my luggage. Dave Hamilton on the Mac Geek Gab told a really interesting story about his daughter's experience with an AirTag in her luggage that really cemented my sentiment. His daughter went through customs in Canada before flying to the U.S. Some cities let you do that, but her bag had not yet arrived from her flight. She convinced the Border Patrol people to let her board the plane to go home without her luggage because she was able to prove using Find My Devices that her luggage was still in her previous location. It had not made the flight. When she arrived at her destination, she didn't bother to wait to see if her luggage came down the chute. She simply went to lost luggage, showed them the the location of her luggage, and they immediately arranged for the return of said luggage. Let's see, we're getting almost done with all the tech on travel here. Bart did a great episode of Programming by Stealth, where we he walked us through how to set up our code to be fully disconnected from the internet so we could play while we were on vacation. I did all of the setup he suggested, and on our flight from Seattle to Iceland, I tested it on the plane to Reykjavik, Iceland, and it worked. Then I got sleepy. And then on the voyage, we very rarely had any downtime at all, and I spent all of that time writing my travelogue, like I said. It was cool to know that I could do it, but my coding will have to wait for another type of break. The final tech story I have to tell you is about our new HVAC system. We had a heat pump installed in our house at the end of last summer. The air handler is in the attic, and it has a little pipe that drains any excess condensation through a hole to the outside of our house. In the attic, there's a little metal tray under the pipe's connection. No fluid should ever show up there, but after early after we had the system installed, there was a leak at that connection. So Steve put a smart leak sensor from Ring into that little pan under the air handler. While we were in Iceland, we got an alert that the air handler leak detector had sensed liquid. It was cool that the detector worked, And it was cool that we were able to get this message because we had such good connectivity, but what are we going to do about a leak up in our our attic? 
Our cat sitter is a very young woman who we just couldn't picture trying to talk through climbing up a ladder into our attic to see if it was a false alarm, especially communicating only through text. The solution was to use yet another connected device. Our HVAC system is a smart system, and I had uh, set the temperature limits in the house to what I felt would be comfortable for our cats in case of a big heat wave, but I was able to see that it was pretty comfortable in the house and simply turn off our HVAC system. When we arrived home, Steve ran a test of the system, and it didn't start a new leak, but it does look like there was water there at one time in the pan. We're pretty sure this was a false alarm, but it was good to know we would be notified if something went wrong and we'd be able to deal with it remotely. Well, I hope you enjoyed and learned something in my coverage of all the tech we used in an interesting trip to the top of the world. Well, I'm going to take a little break here and let Bart take over the microphone. Hi, folks. Bart here with something I don't do very often, a review. In fact, I'm going to review the Cat-Eye Sync bike light system. So I do a lot of cycling. I cycle all year round in all weathers. So bike lights are something that is very important to me. Having been hit you know, in a hit and run once, I don't want to do it again. And we all know that it's important to have lights to see where you're going when you're riding in the dark, but it's actually more important to have what I call your being seen lights. And you need those always. Doesn't matter what time of the day, doesn't matter what time of the night, doesn't matter what country, doesn't matter anything. If you're on a bike on public roads, you need being seen light. And it's not just because there are terrible drivers out there. Because there are terrible drivers out there. But all the drivers at the moment are human beings. And we human beings are pattern matching machines. And we have been trained as drivers to pattern match for things in the shape of cars and trucks and stuff like that. We have not been trained to pattern match on smaller things like bicycles and motorbikes. And so literally drivers often don't see cyclists because they just, you know, get pattern matched into the background. They're just not raised to the conscious awareness of the driver. So you need to do everything you can to catch the driver's eye subconsciously so that the conscious driver can then do the appropriate thing. And bright clothes definitely help. But honest to goodness, the only way to to have any real chance of of catching the driver's eye is to have some sort of non-constant light, right? Pulsing, blinking, just not constant or you will just be, you know, seen as some other light somewhere else. So you need to have being seen light. And because they're so important, I have been very passionate about, you know, bike lights for many years. And I have become extremely loyal, not a, not in a fan by way, in an earned loyalty way to a company called CatEye. They make really high quality hardware that puts out very good light. They have a standard mounting system they've had for years now, which means all of my bikes have CatEye mounts everywhere, right? They come in all different shapes and sizes. I have cat eye mounts on my handlebars, under my saddle, on my helmet, rear seat post, uh, rear struts. They're just, they have just mounts for just about everything you can imagine. It's fantastic. And so I have them everywhere on all of our bikes. And I have been using cat eye lights for oh so very long. And for the last five to 10 years or so, they have also gone all in on rechargeable lights instead of battery operated lights. And because they've been at it for so long, unfortunately, it's not USB-C, it's uh, micro USB. But they have at least kept it standard. So I have a micro USB charger sitting in the kitchen, and that's where I charge all the bike lights for the house. Like, you know, Because all the cat lights, same mounting plates, same charger. It's fantastic. It's a great system of lights. So I absolutely have loved them. The one minor niggle I've been having is that cat have been moving away from 
sort of permanent mounting points, which I like because you can very carefully adjust them and have everything just the way you want. And then you clip the light on or off, you know, to charge it to rubber mounty strappy things. And the idea being that you don't have to have anything on the bike. You just clip the light to the bike and you're ready to go and you can use any bike, I guess, as the advantage. But the downside is you have to bloody well adjust them every time because they're always going to be in a slightly different place, pointing in a slightly different way. So I don't like the rubber, the rubber bandy approach that's becoming really popular, but they're really going all in on it. So I'm guessing other customers must like it or they wouldn't be doing it anymore. Uh, but thankfully, up until now, they have always had adapters you can buy to adapt the rubber bandy ones to the clip on ones, basically. So they stick into the standard mounts. So you probably think that this is going to be the world's shortest review because there's no problem to be solved. Cat Eye's existing system is amazing and I love it to bits. Why am I doing a review of something new? Well, up until this point, all of the cat eye lights I have owned have been dumb lights, right? They're standalone, single devices that have no brain. They have a very, 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 very limited brain. They have a few modes that they can cycle between by you clicking a button. That's it. So what are the pain points to using dumb lights, right? Well, the first thing is they don't have a battery indicator as such. What they have is a low battery warning. So when the battery gets down to 20%, the one and only button on the light glows red. They say, auga, auga, there's only 20% of battery left. Now, depending on which model of light you have, that will give you an absolute maximum of 45 minutes notice that you're about to go dark. Fine if you nip in and out, you know, on a 15-minute cycle or whatever. But I go out for two hours at a time. So if I leave the house and five minutes later, one of the lights I can't see that's strapped to the back of my helmet starts pulsing red on the button I can't see, well, I'm going to be in the, you know, left dark on the helmet very, very long before I get home. It's very annoying. So for that reason, I always actually run with two backlights, one mounted to the bike and one mounted to me, either a helmet or clothing. And I run with two front lights as well, uh, one for being seen and one for seeing. So in summer, I just run with the one, but in winter, I always run with two, a seeing and a being seen light. So there's no way to, to see the actual status of the battery before you leave. The only thing you can tell is... More than 20% because it's not blinking red or less than 20% because it is. There's no way to check the light. Are you at 80%? You know, 30%? Where are you in that spectrum between 100 and 20? There's also no easy way to see the status of the lights you can't see, right? If you have something clipped to the back of your helmet or the back of your jersey, you can't see whether or not it's actually working. Um, and for lights mounted at the back of the bike, it's kind of awkward, but I, I do have sort of ways where I can stick my hand out behind me and see if the red blinking is reflected in my hand. That sort of gives me some sort of idea that there's something going on back there, but it's far from optimal. And there's also no easy way to control the lights that are behind you because you can't reach them easily. Right? So it's just a little bit awkward. So what you really want is to turn this unconnected collection of dumb lights into one single interconnected system of smart lights. And as the name suggests, that's what Cat Eye Sync is for. So the last time I went looking for new lights was about, I'm not sure if it was a year ago, it might have been two years ago. It's a while ago anyway. And at that stage, I, you know, I sort of go to the Cat Eye site, I look for whatever is new and hip, and then I go and find the cheap price on that model somewhere else, usually Amazon, to be honest. And the last time I went, there was no mention of any sort of smart lights. It was just the usual fare, you know, nicer, slicker USB-C, or sorry, micro USB chargeable lights. Great. This time I went to the site a few weeks ago and everywhere splattered across all the pages, very, very prominently, cat eye sync, cat eye sync, cat eye sync. You couldn't miss the cat eye sync 
marketing. So clearly, Cati are very keen to get this new line of connected smart lights out there. That is what they are pushing. That is where they see their future. So I gave their videos a go, had a read of the various pages and decided to buy in. So I bought myself into the Cati Sync system. So the system as a whole has, I sort of think of it being a game of three parts. So you absolutely must have a smartphone app to get this working. So it's available for Android and iOS and the app isn't optional, right? You need the app to get it set up. And then after the app, after the things are set up, you don't really need the app, but it's still nice to have, but you, you can't go, you can't get smart lights without the app. You're, you can buy the lights and they will work as dub lights, but you can't make them smart without the app. So as well as needing the app, which is free uh, and iOS and Android, you also need to have one instance of a primary light that acts as a kind of a hub that will control additional lights. Uh, all of the lights, by the way, you can use as dumb lights, but you have to, and they will just behave like regular cathode lights until you pair them with a primary light. So at the moment, there's only one primary light that's being sold. So the, 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 the range of sync lights is still very small. So there's the sync core is the one light that they have at the moment that behaves like a hub. So it's a front light. Um, it's, it's very much in keeping, really, with the, the, the front headlights Cat I've been making for years. The, the difference over my current front headlight is that it's an extra 100 lumens, which is nice. So I, I've generally had 400 lumen models, and this is a 500 lumen model. So it, as is typical for Cat Eye, it has three full-on modes, so three constant brightness modes. You're, you're seeing modes, a 500 lumen mode, a 150 lumen mode, and a 100 lumen, uh, basically limp home power saving mode. And then it has one of my favorite ones, particularly in the summertime, is your hybrid mode, which is basically a low constant light. So 100 lumens always on with a pulse of 500 lumens superimposed on top of that constant 100 lumen light, sort of a hybrid, you know, flashing mode, perfect for daytime cycling. And then there's a plain old flashing mode, which is perfect for being seen at night. Um takes three or four hours to charge, which is very much in keeping with your typical cat eye headlights. Um... But depending on the mode you use, there's a really quite a large range of expected battery life. Uh, if you just leave it on these simple blinking modes, you can have 130 hours of life. But of course, being a headlight, you're probably going to want it in one of the constant modes. So if you stick it on at 500 lumens full power, you'll get a whopping two hours as opposed to 130 hours. But again, that's very much in keeping with standard expectations for the cat eye range. Uh, it's micro USB charging and it uses the standard mounting bracket, which made me happy because I was just able to clip my core straight into my existing handlebar mount. And when the winter comes, it will fit straight into my helmet mount. So I can, you have my seeing light clipped to my helmet, which is fantastic. And now that it's summer at the moment, I'm using the sync core as a being seen light. Um, so it behaves, if you until you pair it with the app, it behaves like any other cat eye headlight. Uh, like a dumb light. So press and hold for two seconds to turn the light on, press and hold for two seconds to turn the light off, single press to toggle between the five modes, and double click the one button to jump straight into full power mode, so your 500 lumen mode, and then a single click will act basically as a back button and put you back whence you came. So if a car blinds you with headlights, you do a quick double click and then single click, then hopefully they'll dip their light. Or if there's something that you're like, what the heck is that? Double click. Oh, that's what it is. Fine. And then go back to whatever you're doing. Anyway, that, that's that's how all the cat eye headlights have worked for years now. So it it's great that it falls back to just being a normal cat eye light. 
So to make it smart, to give it its brains, you need to pair it to the CatiSync app. And I was really impressed with how simple the pairing mode is. So you open the app and you push the buttons to add device and it'll just give you a choice of which type of device do you want to add. So you say, I want to add a sync core. And then it will say, if the light hasn't been on for a while, just tap the power button on the light to make sure it's awake. And then all CatEye uh, sync cores within range will start to pulse and you just hit the button on the one you want to pair and that will pair it to the app. So the security is basically proximity. Uh, and once it's paired, you can then use the app to control the light. But it doesn't really do very much at that point. It's like, oh, great, I can use my app to turn my light on and off. At the moment, having one single sync device paired to your phone isn't all that useful. It's it's just a gimmick, right? Where it begins to have power is when you start to pair additional lights. So at the moment, the cat eye sync range contains three lights. You have your sync core, which is you must have one core in your system, and then you can have up to seven total. And you can add to that sync core either sync kinetics and or sync wearables. And they're both rear lights. And one would assume that as time goes on, they're going to expand the range and have more than just three models available in the sync range. But for now, you have the sync core that you have to buy. Then you can buy up to an additional six lights between kinetic and wearable of the two models. So I bought the starter kit, which I would actually highly recommend, uh, which is a sync core and a sync kinetic. Uh, and then I added to that one sync wearable. So I have one of each of the possible types of lights. And that total, right? So those three lights came to a total of £92.23 sterling on Amazon's UK site, which I paid as €110.92. So of those two additional lights you can ha- you can add to your set, uh, the Kinetic is is the one that comes as part of the kit. And that's a full-size rear right with all the usual array of functions you would expect from a cat-eye rear right. So you have a bunch of solid constant-on modes. Um, and then it has some flashing modes. But it has a new trick I have not had on any of my previous cat-eye lights. It has an accelerometer. And if you enable what they call kinetic mode, in other words, if you enable the accelerometer, when you have the light on a blinking mode and it detects acceleration or deceleration, basically if it detects you braking, it will flip into full-on highest power solid mode for five seconds. So it's basically a brake light for your bike. Only you don't have to connect it to brake hills or anything like that faffing about. It just uses the accelerometer. It also has the other advances that if you, you know, you, you drop the bike down because you need to stop for something and then you pick the bike up to get set off again, that acceleration of picking the bike up will actually put the light into full power mode for five seconds, which is actually really nice. Um, it's it's a pretty good light, actually. So the charge time is two and a half hours. And again, the battery life varies depending on which mode you put it into, right? So if you have it on um, constant full brightness, which is 40 lumens, then you're only going to get an hour and a half out of it. But that you don't use a rear light in constant mode because the rear light's pure job is a being seen light. So you want it pulsing in some way. So if you just have it as it's sort of its simplest pulsing mode, which they call daytime mode, and you don't turn on the fancy pants braking light feature, you will get 30 hours out of it. Um, but the most realistic setting, I think, is daytime mode, which is this 50 lumens flashing with kinetic mode turned on. And they say, and assuming a you trigger the brake light 60 times, then they say you should get seven hours on a charge. And in my experience, that's the mode I'm using it in. In my experience, I'm getting about nine or 10. So... It's, you know, the seven hours is, is definitely so. So maybe I'm just not breaking as much. 
guess that probably explains the difference. Uh, but honestly, the real magic comes uh, when you pair something, the Sync Kinetic, with the app. Because now the Sync Core knows about the Kinetic. So you pair the Kinetic with the app, but it actually sort of has the effect of introducing the Kinetic to the Core. So the app knows both, and the Core now knows the other one as well. And so the power button on the Core is now the power button for both lights. You press and hold for two seconds and the main light comes on and the backlight comes on. And the, so the one button on the sync core, it now has its LED, which is its status light, is now a status light for both lights. So a solid green light on the status light means that the sync core and at least one connected light is working. So if you see a solid green light, you know that you have front light and at least one working backlight. If your front light goes below 20%, then the one light goes to red. If one of your rear lights goes to low battery mode, the green light begins to pulse. So you get a flashing green light to say, at the moment, you are visible front and rear, but one of your rear lights you can't see is on low battery power. Which is just fantastic, right? If it did nothing else, that would already be amazing. Um, so far, so good, right? So not only does the, you know, the Sync Kinetic is a really cool light, you have all those cool features, but, 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 but. The Sync Kinetic does not use the standard cat-eye rear mounting bracket that I adore. And unlike the Rapid 2 and the Rapid 3, which also don't use that light, they also use rubber bands, the Sync Connect is not compatible with any of the adapters. So while I've been using you know, Rapid 2s and Rapid 3s, which are not, you know, which are not compatible with standard mounting bracket, they are compatible with the universal adapter. Therefore, I've been using universal adapters for years and I've been working really happy. There is no way to connect the Sync Kinetic to your bike apart from the bloody annoying rubber bandy thing that they ship with it. Now, it's it's a pretty flexible rubber band, so I have it mounted. I can't use my seat post because that's where my saddlebag with my tools and stuff is. So I have it mounted on the rear strut, and it is actually fine. The rubber band is adaptable enough that it can mount on the rear strap, and the thing has a little angly triangle. So if you mount it on the seat post, you mount it one way up, and if you mount it on the struts, you mount it the other way up, and the end result is that the light is still pointing, you know, not up at the sky or down at the ground. So it, it does work, but I had to... Flip the, you know, they disconnect and reconnect the rubber band every time I charge. I have to reline up the lights so that they're pointing in the right direction. I, I just wish it was compatible with one of the mounting brackets. I have mounting brackets on all of my bikes. Just connect them. So anyway, they're mildly cranky because I have to use a bloody annoying rubber strap. Uh, and uh, that then brings me to the sync wearable where I'm even more mildly annoyed. I mean, it look, it works, right? It's uh, it has It actually has the same accelerometer feature as the Kinetic, which is kind of nice. But it's a small circular light i say small it's smaller it's like like the size of a silver dollar maybe as opposed to you know it's, it's not teeny tiny small but it's, it's a circular light and it as its name suggests right it's called the sync wearable it's intended to be clipped onto clothing so it comes with a clip that goes onto clothes but it also comes with a rubber bandy thing that fits under the clip so you can use a rubber band to mount it to your seat post but only to your seat post that rubber band won't mount to anything else it, it won't mount onto your struts or whatever so really, it's intended to go, uh, to go in your clothing. 
It has a two and a half hour charge time. It actually has the same brightness as the uh, Kinetic and all the same modes. The only difference is it has fewer LEDs because it's physically smaller. Um, and it also, because it's physically smaller, it does actually have a shorter battery life. So you get six hours in the daytime mode with 60 braking events. So seven hours versus six hours. Well, on the whole, it's actually pretty good. Uh, again, no adapters of any kind, right? So either use a rubber band to stick it to your seat post or you clip it to your clothing. And maybe I'm going to get better at this over time, but uh, it's a round thing that's very smooth. When I try to force the clip over my clothing, it just shoots out of my hand and smacks me in the face. Like, all the not all the time. It's happened far more often than it should have. It goes shooting across the room, and if I'm really lucky, shooting into my face. Now, I, I do seem to be getting slightly better at getting it to actually connect to... Uh, the, the, I Basically, I hook it into the pockets on the back of the cycle jerseys. And I do seem to be getting better at having it actually connect, you know, clip in without slipping into my hand. But honest to goodness, it's like bloody trying to get soap onto something. So really good lights, but gosh darn it, just make mounting brackets, cat eye, please. Okay, anyway, so everything I've been doing so far has been in the summertime. So I've been using all three of those lights um, and I'm using their daytime modes. And I basically, I just do a two second press on the sync core as I'm setting out and all my lights come on. Right? So my front light comes on to a flashing mode. Uh, my two rear lights come on to flashing modes. And when I break, I get the light up mode on the two back lights. Bloody amazing when I come home, I press and hold the power button on the core for two seconds and all my lights go off. At every point in my cycle, I know as long as I see a solid green light, all is good. If I see a blinking green light, it means one of my rear lights is about to go out. So I need to pop on a spare. And uh, if I get a blinking red light, it means my front light's about to go out, in which case I also need to pop on a spare. So, so far, so good. Um... And I've seen the LED do its thing, right? So it really does do the whole blinky patterns in green and red as advertised. And that definitely works. So that's great. And as I say, the docks say you can have up to seven lights, but I've only used it with a full set of three, right? So one of each type. So the other question then is, okay, what about the app? So I've only used the iOS version. Um, and it does what it says it does, right? So uh, everything that the website says it does, the app does. So great. But, you know, it could do more. So, like I said, the pairing is stupendously easy. And uh, the other nice thing is that when you launch the app, so once you've paired all of your lights, when you launch the app, the first thing you get on the home screen is the status of all of your connected lights. So you can just see at a glance, they have a big pie chart for the battery percentage. And you can just see at a glance what state is the battery in. And if it's a current state, if it's actually communicating with the light right there and then, it will say connected with a tick mark. And if it's not a current state, if it's showing you the last known state, it will have the date and time underneath the battery pie chart to basically tell you the last time I saw this light was at this time. And when I last saw it, it still had, you know, 80% battery or whatever. So that's actually really cool. Uh, there's also a, a uh, pretend power button. Um, so you can press and hold the virtual button in the app and it will turn on or off all of your lights, which I guess is kind of useful. Um, other things you can do is you can go in and customize each light to disable modes. So if you, it, you know, the f most of them basically have five, in fact, all three of them have five modes at the moment. And if you only care about two of those five modes, well, you can actually just untick the modes you don't care. And then pressing the button on the light itself will cycle between just those two modes instead of all five modes or, you know, three modes or four modes, whatever it is you like. Uh, and there's also a switch to enable and disable the kinetic mode, i.e. the accelerometer thingy. 
And without the app, actually, I don't think you get the accelerometer mode at all. Uh, I think you only get that when you pair them and stop them being dumb devices. Uh, but you can't tell the current the current mode of one of the paired lights from the app, and you also can't change the mode on the lights from the app. So really, you can just turn it on and turn it off and customize the modes that exist. You can't actually set the mode. Uh, the other thing I noticed just before recording, so I haven't had the chance to test this, but uh, there is actually a the toggle that you can turn on to send notifications to your phone when, when your batteries is running low. So I've enabled that, and hopefully that will mean I'll get a notification on my watch next time I'm about to lose batteries. So I won't even have to keep an eye on the little green LED to make sure it's still on. But anyway, so, you know, that's we'll see how that works out. I haven't had the chance to test that yet. So does it solve my three pain points? Well, can I easily see all the battery statuses in the app? Yes, I can, right? I'm not just, I don't just have a 20% warning. I can open the app. In fact, I, this is now part of my routine when I get home. Before I put the bike away, I open the app and I look at the status of all of my lights. And if any of them are less than 50%, I pop them on the charger. Hey, presto. Very unlikely to run out of battery. Uh, the other thing then is the home screen of the app lets me very easily verify that all of my lights are on, as indeed does the physical button. So I can, you know, the, the status light on the sync core as well as the home screen app will quickly let me verify, yep, I can be seen front and rear, which is an amazing peace of mind. Um, and, you know, the, you can pair them all on and pair them all off in one go without having to try to reach around to the back of your head and stuff. So you have, you have confidence that you have rear lights on and you can easily turn them on and off without having to, you know, take things off and stretch around and stuff like that. So, yeah, all three of my pain points I mentioned up front have indeed been solved. It's not perfect, though, because it did introduce a new pain point of the sync kinetic not being adaptable to the standard mounting brackets and the uh, rubber, uh, the, the clip-on wearable wanting to hit me in the face. Um, but maybe Cat will release some adapters in the future and then I'll be less cranky about that. Uh, and I am left with the point of confusion. Right? The manual says you can have up to seven lights, but it doesn't actually tell you what combinations are valid. And when I went to add the lights in the interface, it looked to me like I could only add one of each type. But I don't have any extra lights to test with, so I don't know. But it's I'm getting very mixed signals from the interface in the app versus what the, the manual says. But even the manual, it's just one through a well line, up to seven lights. That's it. Full stop, end of story. Doesn't describe in any detail, so can I have two cores? Because I'd really quite like two front lights, right? I like one on my helmet and one on my handlebars. But there only is one model of front light, and it's a sync core. And since it's kind of a hub, maybe it doesn't make sense to have two of them. But it doesn't say in the manual that you can't. It also doesn't say you can't. So I genuinely have no idea whether or not I can have two sync cores as part of my seven. Don't know. There's also obvious room for improvement and growth, right? So given how long-lived all of Cat Eye's previous standards have been, I would expect that this sync product line is basically an infant, right? This is a starting point, so it's only going to get better from here. So... I just expect we're going to see lots more Sync Connect style stuff in the next while. So if I were sitting in the boardroom over at CatEye and I were to get to have my pick of what they focused on for future upgrades of the, the this whole system, the first thing I would do is I would release bloody well adapters so the Sync Kinetic and the Sync Wearable can be connected to the standard CatEye rear mount system. Basically, I want an equivalent of the universal adapter that will work with Kinetic. Or sorry, it will work with Sync Kinetic and Sync Wearable. I'd also like more compatible lights, right? So at the moment, there's just three form factors in the kinetic range, but that I sell way more than three. So I would love to see some additional form factors added to the sync compatible range. So one of the first things I'd really like 
is a lightweight secondary light to act as a front light that would be designed to be helmet mounted. So you'd have, so rather than having a sink, so you keep the sink core on the handlebars and then you'd have a lighter slave light, or sorry, secondary light uh, that would be designed for helmet mounting, nice and lightweight. That, you know, so that would then take on the role of your seeing light and the sink core can stay in your handlebars and be your being seen light and be the brains of the whole operation. I would also like them to make sync compatible versions of the Rapid 2 or Rapid 3 rear lights, which I'm very fond of. They're just a really nice form factor. So I'd love to have those available to me um, as sync compatible lights. I also was quite fond of their, what used to be called their duo line, which were helmet mounted lights that were, had both a front and a rear light on one tube. So you can imagine a cylinder with a front light on the front and a rear light on the back and one power button. Actually, no, there were two power buttons, but you could have it as one power button if it's a sync light. And that'd just be nice to have that in the mix. I think that'd be very nice. Um, and I also think a front-facing safety light. So basically a green version of the wear of the either the wearable or the, I guess, the kinetic or the brake light feature would be really nice. Then, of course, the app. It'd just be nice to have more features on the app. I'd like to be able to see and change the current state of each light. And you know, I think my absolute, absolute favorite addition for the app would be if you could make like presets where you could basically say, I want to have like a super mode, which is the core in this mode and the kinetic in this mode and the wear in this mode. And then I want this other mode where the core goes into this mode, the kinetic that mode and the sync the other mode. Uh, And then instead of the button on the core toggling the modes of the core, I want the button to toggle these sort of like super modes where I could jump between preset instead of jumping between single mode and just have all the lights change in unison to be you know to town mode versus out in the dark mode or whatever that would be really nice but sure it's possible in the future would there is actually a mechanism for firmware upgrades um that they will appear in the app um, but you will then need to use a mac or a pc to apply them but you'll get notification in the app that there's a there's an upgrade available so that means that there is the possibility of lots of new functionality coming along so basically the bottom line is Already, today, while this system is in its infancy, it is real-world useful for me. I feel as if, I just feel better, I feel safer on the bike, but that just with the status indicator now telling me for sure I have a backlight that's working. That is so valuable that the entire 100 and a bit euro was worth it just to have the confidence from looking at the status on my front light that I have backlights that are working. The brake light feature is just cool and I'm really happy to have that. And I'm prepared to pay the price of having to use the bloody rubber bands and getting hit in the face with the bloody sink wear when I try to clip it onto my clothes. Because frankly, the the benefit of knowing that you have front and rear lights working is just so good. But there's so much room for improvement that basically I expect that I'm going to fall deeper in love with the sync range and it's going to make me an even more loyal Cadi fan than I have been for all these years. So on the whole, I think this isn't just, you know, the future. I think this is the present. I think if you're in the market for new bike lights, give serious consideration to Cadi Sync. 
Well, thank you for that, Bart. Uh, those sound really, really cool. It sounds like they do solve all of the problems, almost all of the problems. I sent Bart a link. Uh, they sell uh, US micro USB to USB-C adapters. You just stick, I think I sent him a link. They were four for $6, maybe $7 US. So you just stick those on the end and you're done with it. You're, you're all done with it. So anyway, that was really cool. I appreciate that. And uh, Bart actually has reviewed the Cat Sync lights before, but they were not the smart ones. So that's really nifty. Now, I've said it before, but this bears repeating. The people who support the show via Patreon and PayPal rock. They help pay for servers, microphones, blog themes, backup, storage, and more to help me and Bart and Alistair bring the shows to you. There are a select few who not only contribute financially, but they also join in the discussion in Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack, helping other people and providing entertainment and just being all around cool in our discussion groups. They also help make the, some of these people also help make the live show more fun by joining every week they can. And maybe one of them has also on top of all of that been on Chit Chat Across the Pond. That awesome person is Bruce Wilson, also known as Save the Data. If you're thinking he's teacher's pet and, you know, he would be anyway, but this week, you know what he did? He actually raised his pledge on Patreon. I didn't know you. I don't know if you knew you could do that, not just contribute, but you can actually raise it if you want to. You can also lower it too if you need to. So if you want to be teacher's pet, consider joining the community in Slack, just like John Hudak did this week, or stop by the live show from time to time and maybe throw a dollar or two into the Podfeet coffers to help keep the show going. Thank you so much, Bruce, for going to podfeet.com slash Patreon and showing your faith in the show with actual dollars. Well, Steve and I really love MacStock Conference and Expo in Chicago every year. We've gone for five years. One year we had to do it over uh, over uh, video conferencing because it was the time that my grandson Forbes was born. But we have never missed it until this year when I was so bummed that it ended up scheduled smack dab on top of our trip to Iceland. I decided to torture myself and, and you by asking first-time attendee Troy Shimkus to come on the show to tell us how it went. And I have a feeling I'm just going to be even sadder that I missed it. How are you doing today, Troy? I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad to have you guys back in the country. Ah, right, right. Well, we're glad to be home. So this was your first time going. I think, did I help talk you into it in the first place and then not show you up? You did. You did. It was it was 2020, January. I had to go back and look at the messages to be sure. But it was 2020 January, and it was a simple comment that you made in somewhere that just said, you should go to MaxTalk this year. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. So I started looking at it then and bought the tickets that same year. And then, of course, you know, the world ends and <laughs> everything under the sun is canceled for the next three years. Right. And so for three years, you know, I've had these tickets sitting out there that didn't go away because, uh, you know, Mike, who runs MaxTalk, was absolutely amazing in terms of working with everyone and figuring out, you know, what made sense and being safe and keeping the community safe. And he was, he was super hyper about that and offer people, you can roll your tickets over or do whatever you need to do. Or, um, and so I just kind of said, I'll let it ride and kept letting it ride for the last three years until they finally had a nice opportunity to have another in person this year. So it was, yeah, he, I, I just can't imagine what anxious times it has been for somebody trying to put on something like that and trying to do it safely. So um, you were able to hold over your tickets. That was great that Mike uh, kept honoring that because, you know, he had costs associated <laughs> with holding it over, I would assume. Um, so uh, I, I would imagine it was a much smaller attendee group this year. Yeah, they had, um, was it 
they had a hard cap of 120 people that could show up. 90 had registered for coming to this one. And about 60 or so actually uh, appeared um, on the weekend. Okay, well, so that's still was, pretty healthy. It was good. It was, yeah. And I, I told him it was it was really much, um, I think, I don't want to use the word lucky in these contexts, but it, as a first timer, it was really good because I kind of felt like you got to be on the ground floor of where it started, even though it started even smaller than that. But it was it was a, a core, it was such a core group of hardcore Mac stock people that it really did, you know, make it, I think, a really good time for a first timer to be there and not get lost in the crowd. <laughs> so one of the things that I love about MacStock is the feeling of community. Did you feel that? I did. It was it was um, an instant community almost, which was, you know, I, I, I generally am not the most outgoing person um, in new crowds. I don't, you know, probably it's probably true of a lot of people. And so, you know, you get there, I'm there alone. I was traveling alone and I didn't know a soul there. I'd never met anyone who was there. And so the first few, you know, the first session happens and I'm kind of just sitting in the corner doing my little wallflower thing, like trying to find a break in and figure out like, how do I, how do I not be rude, but how do I not, you know, interject? And, and um, the community there was, I think, almost hyper aware of being welcoming. And so they made it so easy. And by the end of it, um, it was, it was really funny. We were at one of the, you know, the after dinners at um, one of the cafes in the area and I didn't realize it, but they were talking about a lot of different things. And someone looked at me and, and made some comment like, oh, you've been here you know, so many times and, and you know all these people here. And I had to speak up and say, actually, this is my first time here. And I didn't know any of you until two days ago. And they were genuinely like, had they, they were shocked to hear that. They, it was just so easy to fit in with everyone there that it really did feel like I had known them for, for years. And so um, you know, I think that that does speak to what Matt, what uh, Mike has been able to build over the last, you know, several years of doing this and build a community that is very open and welcoming to to newcomers and not not at all clicky, not at all standoffish, um, and very you know easy to kind of mold yourself into and not feel out of place, which is very nice for you know traveling alone for a first time like that. Yeah, that that's good to know. <laughs> I you know, might be the opposite kind of person. I'm the person that runs up to people I don't know and says, hi, what are you doing here? What do you know? Uh, but uh, so I always assume that's how come I got to know so many people, but it sounds like everybody made it easy for that. So the the format, there were uh, presentations during the day and then uh, little events in the evenings? Yeah, so uh, it was a two-day event. And the way they broke it up, because obviously, you know, they actually had a few, a few uh, presenters cancel um, pretty close to the, the start of um, the, the the event, so they definitely had to kind of figure things out. But they did this morning um, overview session, and then in the in the afternoon they would do a, a deep dive into the same topic. And so you got to see the same presenters, you know, the morning and then the afternoon, and get to ask more questions. So it actually worked out, I think, very well for what it ended up being. Um, and so in the evening, just on our own because nobody really knew who would be comfortable going to somewhere, so we looked for outdoor dining that was friendly for you know the concerns that people had and um and so we found you know kind of amongst ourselves the first night mike sort of directed us to hope let's go to this this place mm -hmm. um that he found that was outdoor and local and then the second night it, it, there's the attendees themselves basically you know decided that oh there's this place next to our hotel let's let's, let's go there and you know the majority of people met there and i mean both nights i was hanging out with these folks until 11 or 12 and midnight. So, you know, there was definitely, you know, a very open, very, very active, you know, after stock, if you will call it that, although that's what he actually named 
one of the afternoon sessions. So I guess Apristock actually has an official meeting now. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the presentations. Um, I know the last time I went, he did that where you did a, a short presentation on stage and then a deeper dive into it in the afternoon. Um, there were concurrent sessions then. Was it just one track this time? Yeah, it was. It was one track. Um, so that they, you know, obviously because of the attendance and the missing presenters and such, it was it was a one track thing. Um, and so they, you know, they just had the same people in the morning and afternoon and you get, so it got you a chance to see all of the different options that were there. Um, I, I actually and, prefer that. I always have FOMO. I mean, I'm convinced that whatever presentation I'm seeing and I'm missing the good one, even if it's great, I'm thinking, yeah, I bet that other one was better though. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a really hard thing. And I actually have, um, organized and ran, uh, events like that for, as a, as a former band director in Florida here. I played a huge role in organizing conventions for for school band programs, both at at local university level, all the way up through a state side that we had tens of thousands of, of attendees. And des- defining tracks in any context is really difficult. And when you have a, a group like MaxDoc, which is generally smaller and everyone's so curious about technology, I can't imagine how you could break things up and let and really understand how people can see what they want to see and not have that fear of missing out. I think that's going to be a really hard thing to to go back to when we want to. Yeah. At the same time, there are a lot of people who want to present and people have great material. And so cutting down the number of people who can present doesn't seem to be a good idea either. So I'm just really glad I'm never in charge of anything like that. I, I can just <laughs> complain and say what I like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So any particular talks you wanted to bring up or just they were all great or? So um, Mike Rose was the opening presentation and he is a, um, I'm not going to remember his title offhand, but it's it's a senior uh, sales engineer, I believe, or something in that realm at Salesforce. And I, it set a tone for me because I came in there thinking this is going to be like super nerdy, deep dive, you know, everything about Mac. And we're going to talk about M2 chip architecture in some case. I mean, I just thought that I, in my brain, I had built it up to be that, like super Mac, everything. But, um, you know, Mike set this, this kind of tone of, he talked about professional goals and running a team and, and what sales engineering does and how how you it, it just it spoke to so much of my life outside of just my Mac my my love of Macs you know it was something I could take back to my profession and and I kept thinking oh God if I had known that ten years ago I could have not accidentally failed my way to where I am professionally but actually have had a goal and who knows where I would be ended up so it was it was so approachable and so applicable to parts of your life and then it was always like. I don't want to present it as an afterthought because it wasn't as it wasn't an afterthought per se, but it was like here's this great topic about sales engineering and, and building a team and, and understanding team dynamics. I mean, here's how I do it on a Mac, and that's kind of the tone of each of the talks, but in such a great way that lets you take the Mac stuff and and know because you love Mac and learn about all these new apps that I'd never heard about that were could be great tools. But the content, the core content of the talks was really applicable across many areas of a life, not just about Mac only, which I thought was a really, I don't know if that's true of other years. Um, it may have just been a, a phenomenon of this concurrence of events and, and craziness in the world, but it really, for me, made it a lot better, I think, than what it could have been. Yeah, that doesn't sound uh, much like what I've what I've seen in the past. 
Um, but I think one of the things Mike has really tried to do is mix up each year what the theme is. He likes to have a theme. So like one year it was play and everybody got to interpret play the way they wanted to. Was it yeah. about gaming or is there something else you do that you consider play on your Mac or, or iOS or whatever? And sometimes it's been very tutorial-ish. I tend to do more of the tutorial kind of thing. So, of course, that's a near and dear to my heart. But I think Mike likes to to mix it up and thinking of... The, how you use the Mac to do something you're trying to get done, not just the Mac is the center of the topic, but why it's it helps you get that thing done that you're trying to do. Yeah, and well, a good example of that actually was Erin um, Dawson, who's also he's from she's from Oracle. She's a um, uh, dev developer relations um, person <laughs> at Oracle, and she did a topic on composing your own soundtracks for videos you make as a way of avoiding royalty fees and things like that and not getting your stuff taken down on YouTube. And so mm -hmm. she did it in Logic Pro and she, you know, she did the correlation of how you do it in Logic and how you can do it in um, GarageBand because we all have that for free. And that's, a, so that was absolutely like Mac only, like you, because you have a Mac, you have this really unique ability to use these tools that are given to you for free or pay a little extra and do some extra stuff maybe, but for free with what you get out of the box, you can do this really cool thing. And she walked you through as a professional, you know, trained, um, musician that she is as well she walked you through how to uh write music for your video and for me as a also a professional musician um i never did composition because it was just not in my wheelhouse and i never thought about it and i you know for her she actually made composition approachable for even me even though she made it in a way that anyone could understand it wasn't about knowing music it was just here's how you use this tool that has been provided with these loops and these and these resources and she did a video and we basically, you know, in real time watched her create a little soundtrack for a video she took at the conference. So oh. there's definitely that concept of doing those how to's in a way that is uniquely Mac that you can't replicate that on any other platform because the tools just aren't provided for you the way they are for Mac. Wow. Wow. That one sounds really fun. I would have, I would have definitely liked to have seen that. So you it have, you have succeeded in making me even sadder that I didn't get to go. <laughs> uh, hopefully next year, our big trip is planned in January. So hopefully I can keep uh, the middle of July open for, uh, for going to Stock next year. So uh, it takes place in uh, a suburb of Chicago. So it's easy to get to within the United States, definitely a little farther for Europe and some other parts of the world, of course. Um, but you flew up from Florida and, uh, you felt it was worth the money. It isn't even very expensive, right? I don't even remember how much uh, it is. Well, so my flight was a thousand dollars. The, oh. you know, the hotel for the weekend was another $400 and then, you know, so it does add up because I rented a car as well. It's about an hour outside of, outside of Chicago near uh, Woodstock and Crystal Lake, um, in kind of that area of Chicago, of, uh, of Illinois. So, um, you can, I mean, you could, I'm certainly find ways to do it cheaper. Um, but we had, you know, a guy came over from Holland. So there's definitely an international audience. And yeah, I think Martin. 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 He's been there, I thought. Um, and so, and, and another guy I met, um, traffic engineer out of, out of, I'm so bad memory, um, out of California, Southern California. I can't remember exactly what city. He took a train over from, from Southern California. So there's okay. definitely opportunity to get there. Um, and there's, there's, it can add up. But for me, it was real worth, I think. I think all in said and done, I spent probably around twenty five hundred dollars to get there. Um, oh wow! Okay, but yeah, but the so, conference but itself that, doesn't cost a lot of money. <laughs> no, the conference itself was only one hundred and seventy nine dollars. I'm sure next year the prices are probably going to go up because of everything that's happening. You know, and how hard it is to get space and all that. So right, don't quote, right. Don't quote that price. But was no, it the Jason, actual conference? Was Jason the one that uh, on the train? I will. I am not remembering. I don't think Jason sounds right. Okay. 
Okay. But there were so many names. And I was, <laughs> I'm bad at names on my um, best day. So yeah, I understand yeah. that. But right. um, I would, I would just um, one quick final thought is uh, they are really wanting to bring in more presenters, but they are also, uh, there was a lot of talk about diversifying the presenter panels. And so I think the, the, the call to action, if you will, to ask here is, is if you know anyone in a diverse community in an underserved community, whether it's, you know, people of color, uh, LGBTQ, um, disabled community, any of those communities where, where they have a lot of, lot to say about how they use technology, you know, there's, there's an opportunity here for them to get on a stage and share their experience with a community that really wants to know about it and wants to see what they can do to help with those communities and make those communities, you know, you know, give them something more in that community as well. So I think there's an opportunity there. If we know anyone um, out there for those. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, we did have a blind presenter one year. Um, Dr. And I've forgotten his name. I've had him on the show. That name came up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's cool. That's very cool. I love it. it. I think you definitely experienced the reason I love MaxDoc is that community feeling. I think that that's, uh, I think that's really, really cool. So, uh, all right. Well, Troy, this was really fun having you on the show to just give us a little breakdown and give us a feel for what it felt like uh, to be there. And I uh, appreciate you doing this, especially on the short notice. I gave Troy, I think it was an hour and 10 minutes notice that I wanted to do this. Perfect time. All right. Thanks a lot, Troy. Well, we managed to pull together a pretty healthy, long show for you guys this week, but that is going to wind us up for this week. Did you know if you want to email me at any time, you can do that by sending it to allison at podfeed.com. If you have questions or suggestions, just send it on over. Maybe a dumb question. Love dumb questions. You can follow me on Twitter also at Podfeet. And if you want to join in the fun of the conversation, like I mentioned that John did just recently, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. That's where you can talk to me and Bart and Alistair and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And remember, we will not have a live show for the next two weeks, so it'll be August 21st that you should head on over to podfeet.com slash live at uh, 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.